When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. They agreed to rendezvous back at the lakefront in an hour's time and she's never been seen since, she never returned and uh, no one no one knows whatever happened to her. It's been described as one of New Zealand's most baffling missing persons cases. The disappearance of 36-year-old Heidi Charles who went missing in Rotorua in 1976 on New Year's Eve. This is Season 5 of Crimes NZ, and I'm Jesse Mulligan. In this podcast, I talk with people about some of New Zealand's most serious crimes. So to tell us about the Heidi Charles case, I'm joined by true crime writer Scott Bainbridge. Heidi was a, um, a German-born um, woman who travelled all over the world, and she met her husband, who was also a, a traveller, and they decided um, in March 1976 to settle in New Zealand. They had two sons aged eight and six, and they settled in Wellington, and um, they'd only been in New Zealand for nine months, but they evidently, you know, they both had um, secure jobs and growing family and stuff, and and then at the end of the year, they decided to travel around New Zealand and holiday in Rotorua. Um, At that time, Heidi had missed her her elderly father, and, and he had arrived in New Zealand only a couple of weeks earlier, so she was, you know, over the moon to spend some time with him. And they they planned to camp at um, on the shores of Lake Rotuiti in, in Rotorua, and on New Year's Eve, they decided to to travel into Rotorua to to enjoy the festivities. Um, that the, that the town had to hold, and, and they decided to do some shopping for that night's dinner. They arrived in their camper van around just before midday, and um, Heidi and, and Robin, her husband, said to the boys, well, you guys go and play in the playground, and we'll pick you up in about an hour. But um, Heidi sort of all of a sudden said to her husband, look, I'd, I'd like to do the shopping by myself. And so he left her to it, and they agreed to rendezvous back at the lakefront in, in, in an hour's time. And, um, yeah, she, she's basically, she's never been seen since. She never returned, and uh, no one... No one knows whatever happened to her. When was she last seen? Well, there was one sighting um, half an hour after she departed, about uh, 12.30 at a woman's clothing store in Tutanakai Street. Um, and then no other sighting. Now, Rotorua New Year's Eve in the afternoon, there were close to about 70,000 people. Mm. So it was, you know, there was a huge throng of people in, in town and, um, yeah, you know... Um, she just yeah, vanished off the face of the earth. Um, after it was reported, after she was reported missing, there were a number of sightings of somebody fitting her description um, on the road out of Rotorua and in Atiyamuri, which is sort of between Rotorua and, and Topol. When you say on the road, like hitchhiking? Yeah, yeah. Um, two uh, travellers believe that they saw her hitchhiking um, along the road. 
but there's no sort of no one came forward to say that they'd picked her up or anything like that. You know, if you compare that to the Mona Blades um, disappearance a year earlier, you know, the Mona had been picked up by a few people and they had come forward. But in this particular case, only a handful of people saw her hitchhiking. You've described this particular case as very mysterious, Scott. Yeah, well, look, the 1970s was the era of what they called the motorised offender, where there were a number of, of girls and women that had been picked up by an offender in a vehicle and, you know, and murdered, and, and a lot of their cases are unsolved. Now, with this particular one, there was nothing to suggest that she had been had been murdered, and, and, and I know that um, there were a number of men interviewed in, in the weeks after her disappearance, including um, two men... Uh, from Rotorua that were also interviewed in relation to the Mona Blades disappearance, but those those two men had you know cast iron alibis and so they were discounted. Equally, there was nothing to nothing to suggest that she had staged her own disappearance, because yeah, she seemed she, her family believed that she was quite happy um, at home and she she was enjoyed she had a part time job and she was studying, and she was enjoying her life in New Zealand. When did they raise the alarm, by the way? Was it after she didn't show up for her uh, for that arranged rendezvous? Yeah, well, after she failed to arrive at, at, at one o'clock at the van, um, her husband sort of waited around a bit and collected the boys, and then they drove around the township, all, all the streets, and um, no sign of her, and they went into Durant's supermarket where she was supposed mm. to go. Nobody reported, you know, seeing her, anybody of her description. And um, they, so they, they made inquiries at the local hospital in case she had an accident and with the police and it was towards the end of the day that, you know, they, they officially reported her missing. In between time, they, of course, they did go back to the, to the lake camp and, the, you know, with the possibility that she had become lost and found her own way back to the camp, but no-one had seen her. And how solid is that sighting at 12.30 uh, in the women's clothing store half an hour before she was meant to be meeting the rest of her family? Well, she was. Um, the shop assistants described her as, you know, ha- having a, an accent, and also she was wearing pretty distinctive clothing. So she was wearing sort of bright orange slacks and a, a striped blue and white t-shirt. And remember, this is the 1970s, so those, you know, those colours were, were they didn't sort of stick out too much. But they're adamant that, um, you know, that she did pop in for a few minutes and then and then leave. Which also seems to suggest um, that it wasn't her staging her own disappearance because, you know, if you leave your husband at midday and you've uh, got an appointment to meet the family back at 1pm, you wouldn't think you'd go shopping before staging a disappearance, at least not clothes shopping. No, that's right. And the, the, the police did sort of look at the, the possibility that, that she, you know, she may have staged her own disappearance, but in her handbag back at the camp were her passport and you know her um, in, her, in her purse, and you know had, had she you know wanted to disappear or, or, or go overseas again, you know she would have obviously needed her passport. You know even back in the seventies, where it was reasonably easy to travel in between countries, you still needed a passport. So did police have any leads at all? No, none whatsoever. There was you know a huge publicity drive in the weeks after she disappeared, and and there was nothing until probably about the uh, three weeks later at the end of January that somebody reported uh, a, a German woman of her description at a shop in Point Chevalier in a takeaways. But um, yeah, that person that that made that reported that sighting just figured that it was her and that she had been found and 
they hadn't kept up with the news and then it wasn't until it was realised that she was still regarded as missing that um, that person came forward. But the the Auckland police, you know, got that tip off and, and um, scoured the streets for a number of days afterwards, but they, they, um, they didn't sort of find her. Uh, they did a bit of a hot pools test. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, for many, many years, there's been that myths that, um, you know, if people fall into the hot pools or, or the hot geothermal pools, um, it can break down a body and, you know, people disappear that way. And at the time, the uh, Rotorua police decided to throw the carcass of a, of a sheep into the hot pool and it just bubbled up to the surface. So that dispelled that myth. But just interesting, just to, to digress that, um, I was involved in a in an investigation of a missing person um, in Rotorua who disappeared in 1989. And that theory, again, came up that on his way home, this chap, Lance Kapoor, would have had to go walk through Kuiro Park where there are a number of small hot pools. And it was the you know possibility that he might have fallen into the hot pools and the, the hot pools eradicated his body. So as part of the um, experiment and with the cooperation of a, um, of a pathologist, the Rotorua City Council and, and local iwi, we put the carcass of a recently killed pig into a hot pool one of the the you know hotter of the pools in Kuiro Park, and the reason why putting a pig in there was um, the pig makeup uh, is very similar to that of a of a human, and um, and we monitored the that that pig in um, in the hot pool for uh, about two or three days, um, but it, it it didn't break the body down whatsoever. Um, it, it certainly you know boiled the heck out of it, and it. Um, uh, you know, created one heck of a smell too, but it didn't destroy or break down the body at all. So, yeah, that, the, the myth of, 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 of somebody falling in, into a hot pool and disappearing that way, um, yeah, that myth was dispelled. What did her husband make of this? Did he have, well, did he have any thoughts as to what had happened? He had no idea, and I know that um, certainly there were a lot of fingers pointing his way, and he felt that he was the one, obviously being one of the last persons to have seen her, and that he may have been responsible. But, but he he was just as flummoxed as everybody because he you know he was of the opinion that you know everything was okay, and uh, she had seemed a little bit stressed because prior to her disappearance, because um, you know she was having to to act as a translator or interpreter for her elderly father and his partner who were over and it was just sort of taking its toll. But, um, yeah, certainly, um, you know, he, he had no no rhyme or reason as to, as to why she disappeared. Um, you know, and a lot of people that do know her and people that I've talked to, you know, recall that, you know, she was a doting mum, you know, and she had two young boys and they were the world to her. And, you know, there was just no... You know, no, no reason as to why she should leave them, um, you know, not make any contact. So let's have a look at what else was going on in the 1970s. Could there have been any connection to other cases of this type around then? Yeah, as, as I mentioned earlier, there, you know, there were a number of women that had fallen prey to um, motorised offenders. Each one of those had different suspects, and I believe the police would have looked at, at those at the at the time. Um, but you know, there was nothing no, nothing really that stood out. And certainly, like if you as I say, compare it to Mona Blades um, and Jennifer Beard. You, you know that well. Jennifer Beard was found, but but police realised you know reasonably early on that that Mona was probably murdered. With Heidi, it was less obvious. Um, 
also any if she was abducted it would have been you know it was in the middle of the day in in front or among so many people it would have yeah you know, you know something would have would have stood out there it, it just yeah it, it's just a, a pure mystery and and you know I've I've known about this case for many years and I did discuss it at length back in the 1980s with the detective that was involved with both that one and um, Mona Blades, the late Ned Ryan, and um, even he said that you know he changed his mind every so often as you know as to whatever you know whatever happened to her, whether she was killed or or whether she staged her own disappearance. Um, certainly, she she did have. I did say that her purse was found at the camp, but it was known that she had a a, a reasonable amount of money on her. Um, she had two hundred dollars in cash, and in nineteen seventy six, that was in a. I'm not sure what the conversion was, but it's probably worth a couple of thousand in today's denominations. But um, her father, had, her elderly father, had given her an, uh, $200 as well. So she was carrying around a significant sum of money. Um, but you know, you, you know, any thought of her staging her own disappearance was wasn't really taken too seriously because you know she'd only been in the country for nine months and she didn't know anybody outside. Her immediate family and and some of the, the the family that she you know lived around in in Wellington, she certainly wouldn't have known anybody in Rotorua. Um, yeah, so it, it's just a you know complete mystery. And and the police did um, look at the time at the airport records to see if not so much her her, but um, if she may may have had a different name, changed a different name, and got a different passport, which would have been reasonably easy at that time to obtain a fraudulent passport. But there was nothing that stood out, you know, any any similarities, um, you know, with names. You mentioned Mona Blades a couple of times. For people mm. who are not familiar with, what are the bare facts of that case? Well, it was Queen's birthday weekend. Yet, you know, it's a public holiday um, in 1975, which was about 18 months before Heidi disappeared. And Mona was um, on her way to visit family down in Hastings, and she left Hamilton in the morning, and she got picked up several times hitchhiking. Um, but the last sighting was just. Um, Outside Topol, and uh, she was seen, in, in, as a passenger in an orange Datsun station wagon, that was seen um, diverting down Martia Road, which is a side road between Napier and Topol. And um, the the car had been parked up, and um, very shortly afterwards, uh, that car, you know, returned on its way, and Mona's never been seen again. But it's believed that Mona was murdered by the man in that orange Datsun station wagon. Yeah. And, mm. And that's pretty close geographically to Heidi. Eighteen months later, is it your your feeling that the two might be connected? I had thought that, but um, having talked to the detective involved and and, and other people, I, I would say not. The only similarity really is, as you say, it was um, in the same kind of region. It was a it was a public holiday, and they were both hitchhiking. But um, the police were. were at that stage, were pretty certain that they had the suspect. For, um, they knew the suspect of Mona's disappearance, and he had he had died. Although um, in recent years, another person has come to light. Mm. Um, I don't know whether or not he's been interviewed in regards to um, Heidi's disappearance. Mm. When you say they were both hitchhiking, that's if we're to believe that sighting someone saw her on the way out of Rotorua. How solid was that sighting? Oh, they were pretty solid. They came forward not long after it was publicised and, and the, the, the people had given a lot more detail, particularly around the clothing that she wore. Um, and that, that sort of spurred police to believe, to give it some credence that the sightings were genuine. 
Okay. I also just want to mention a possible, I think this has been ruled out, but a possible connection with the notorious Australian serial killer, Ivan Milat. Yeah, well, Ivan Milat, yeah, he, a mass murderer from, from Australia, um, you know, he, he was convicted in the late 90s, I think, or it might have been the early 2000s of a number of murders of a number of backpackers over in Australia and when his crimes came to light and they delved in a bit more into his background to see whether or not he was responsible for any more, uh, it was learned that he was living in New Zealand um, between April 1971 and April 1974. So police, um, senior detectives sort of got together to, ha- to, to have a look at the files to see you know, who, if there were any, any women that were missing or were murdered and their cases remained unsolved in, you know, in that time. But um, in between that time, there were 1971 and 1974, there were very few murders in New Zealand, and um, of those, um, they were all solved. So there was no sort of outstanding unsolved murder that they could attribute to him. And, and when he was in New Zealand, Malat had... had it escaped Australia because he'd, you know, committed a, a reasonably big bank robbery, and he was on the run. So he, he lay low for the time that he was here, just picking up, um, you know, labouring jobs here and there. But um, certainly there were no, no serious crimes um, attributed to him during his stay here. And what's the story right now with the police investigation, with the police case? Where is it at? Well, like anything, any any old case where the leads uh, dry up, I guess it's still regarded as an open case. I don't believe that it's gone to a coronial hearing. Um, I guess you know the police are just waiting for any information. And but we're talking an awful long time ago now. Um, I originally wrote about the case in my very first missing person book called Without Trace, and shortly afterwards, when that came out, I received a number of calls. A lot of them were were you know oddball theories. But you know, it was there were two two gentlemen that did contact me, respective of each other, and they both knew the Charles families, respectively, um, in Wellington in the 1970s, and they were in the Boy Scouts with with Heidi's sons, and you know, both of them at different times, you know, told me that, you know, we heard, um, you know, Mr. Charles say to one of the boys, you know, if you don't do, do as you're told, I'll do what I, you know, what I did, to your mum. So, you know. Casting sort of uh, light on on the possibility that Robin Charles murdered his wife, and um, I raised that with Alex Charles, that's Heidi and Robin's elder son, and he scoffed and, and laughed at the suggestion. He said that look, it's just absolutely not true at all. Um, it was probably taken out of context, but he said, you know, they they really had a hard time growing up because you know not only the publicity around the case and I guess fingers pointed at their dad but you know it was hard for for, for the family uh, Robin was a um, was it slightly older when when you know when Heidi gave birth and you know he all of a sudden had to become you know mum and dad to his boys as they grew up and and Alex did tell me that you know they you know they grew up you know in a loving family environment and and Robin did a fantastic job bringing them up so what's your personal theory? That changes all the time. You know, when I first um, delved into it, I, I was of the belief that, that Heidi did, Heidi was murdered. Um, you know, and she was p- picked up by, you know, um, hitchhiking and she was picked up and she was murdered. But the more I think about it, uh, I do struggle with that sometimes. Um, any abduction would have had to have been spontaneous and um, in a busy public area. Um, 
when you know when she was last seen um would have been spotted i think um and obviously unless you know she did get killed by somebody that picked her up hitchhiking but you know you know equally um she could have easily have started up she may have had a secret life you know where she had met somebody else um, and they decided to, you know, to go off and have a new life. Uh, but e- that equally, I find that hard to believe because, you know, if she was a, a loving mother, as, as she's portrayed to be, she, you know, she would have made contact at some time with her sons, even if it was, you know, yeah. years later. And when I talked to Alex, you know, he said, look, they've, you know, heard, heard abs- absolutely nothing, you know, in that in that time. Um, yeah, it's it's just, it's a, yeah, it is a, it's a huge mystery. Do you think there's any chance the case will ever be solved? I don't. I don't think so. Um, unless you, you know somebody has a deathbed confession, or if Heidi is alive herself, you know she comes forward, and also, um, or if they know, find we, a body, I suppose, or if they find the body, yeah. Um, and you know, and, and that's happened before, where you know missing people have been found years and years later. Look at, um, um, you know, Jane Furlong. You know, he, her body was found sort of over twenty years after she disappeared. But when you when you go back through uh, the statistics of you know the the newspapers when they when they bring up cases of of people that have been missing presumed murdered Heidi's case is never mentioned so you know why why is that you know you'd think that um it would have had as much publicity today as Mona Blades would because yeah any any little news about Mona Blades um makes you know front page news yet um you know Heidi was probably never afforded certainly after you know that the, the leads died down, she was never afforded the publicity that her case should have had. You've been listening to Crimes NZ with me, Jesse Mulligan. You can find more episodes of this series on the RNZ podcast page. It's also on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you catch your favourite podcasts. Follow the series; it'll mean you won't miss an episode. And if you're looking for your next podcast fix, try Let's Be Transparent, an insight into gender transition from a young man and his mum who've recently navigated the process. And I'm on RNZ each afternoon from 1 to 4pm with an upbeat mix of New Zealand stories from the curious to the compelling. You can find our show on RNZ National. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.